This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, all there is. Tom Slay is almost 70 years old, and you notice very quickly when you meet him that he doesn't seem to have wasted a single minute, something he calls his romance with experience. To give you the briefest summary of that experience, as a child, he lived in Texas, Utah, California. His parents first operated a drive-in movie theater. He and his brother would often fall asleep curled up on the back seat, the sounds of westerns coming through the car stereo. And when television put an end to that, his father became a rocket fuel engineer and his mother, a whip-smart, one-woman renaissance, to use his words, became a high school English teacher. It's to her he owes his love of language, the drive to write, to live with books. But she struggled, his mother, with mental health. And at the time, treatment was limited to stints in an asylum and rounds of electroshock therapy. None of this was easy on the family, of course. And Tom Slay reacted by throwing himself into life, into experience, with even more abandon. At 16, he briefly ran away and joined a ragtag outfit of treasure hunters, in his 20s, he went to live in the jungle of southern Mexico as something of an anthropologist. And much later, in his 50s, after a lifetime of writing and teaching poetry, he became a journalist, reporting from Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Kenya, Somalia, Iraq, mostly on the lives of refugees. And when he writes, he writes with achy precision. He zooms in so close that moral stridencies tend to collapse. He shows you, rather, the tender kiss a young man places on his sister's cheek very early in the morning before going off and blowing himself up, a suicide bomber. He shows you the toddler with the empty stare so close to starvation, but who revives after getting a nutrition bar and starts playing with its silver wrapper. He writes about the mild, studious engineer, soft-spoken like his father, who nevertheless was there, kicking and beating the Libyan dictator Gaddafi to death. Now, Tom Slay has a new poetry collection out, titled The King's Touch, and I biked over to his apartment in Brooklyn to talk about it. But it didn't take long for us to veer off topic. We'd only just sat down in his little office in the back, and I apologized to him for canceling our first appointment. The reason was that I'd gotten some new psych medication and the side effects were no joke. And I yeah. couldn't really think or understand what I was reading, let alone ask smart oh, questions. Oh, good God, so yeah. I thought, let, let's... Let's wait. Let's wait, you know? <laughs> Before you get the wrong idea. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I have, you know, sort of very intimate experience of that with my mother. Yeah. So, yeah, I know the territory well. Yeah. Well, the medication has changed. I mean, it's gotten a lot better, you know? Yeah, so... well, there was no medication no. in those days. No. Yeah. 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 You sort of you sort of did what you did. <laughs> she did fine. She yeah. did fine. Yeah. You know. Yeah, she seems like... I mean, from your writing, she seemed like a really interesting... Person. Yes, yeah, yeah. She died about a month ago. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. That I is mean, very it's... close by. Yeah, it's very close. It's very close. I'm a bit... Um... 
not, I, mean, I don't know how to think about it. It was a very strange uh, death. Why was it strange? Well, she took her own life in the sense of medically assisted suicide. So I was actually out in um, Carl, not Carlsbad. Yeah, Carlsbad. Mm-hmm. Um, with her, you mean? Yeah, with her, yeah. yeah. She, you know, she drank it down in one hand and I held the other one. So it was a very strange, she was 97, had all her marbles. Quite a remarkable woman, but anyway. And were you a part of the decision or what, did she do that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we went over it and round and round and round and round, you know. And she finally just had had it, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, the circumstances around in my mother's last two hours were quite mad, you know. There were like 13 people in the room. Oh, wow. And it was incredibly strange. And, yeah. you know, she was uh, had a wonderfully detached, ironic sense of humor. And, uh, uh, you know, and the whole thing was excruciating and horrible. And I hated every minute of it. And yet at the same time, I had to admire the the doctor walked in and she said, ah, you're the person who's going to do me in. And his response was, because he immediately got her sense of humor, said, no, my dear, you're going to do yourself in. That's amazing. Yeah. But it was strange. She met this guy with a hospice who um, brought in these Tibetan singing bowls, which I thought, yeah, this is going to be unbelievably dippy. <laughs> uh, and... What happened was, uh, you know, they were actually rather beautiful. Mm-hmm. He kept them in the background. Mm-hmm. And it sort of calmed everybody down. And then, yeah. you know, once she took the him walk, um, you know, I remember the doctor saying to her, you know, you'll drink this down. It'll take two to four minutes for you to fall asleep. And then anywhere between 20 minutes and five hours for you to die. And my mother said, well, in that case, you'll have to forgive me if I snore. (laughs) Anyway, it's a long story, but I won't go on and on and on. But it was a very, uh, Mm. anyway, it's very fresh. Has your mother's death interrupted your writing habit? Well, you know, the problem is for me, Helena, is I I had uh, committed to an honors keynote talk. I committed to writing an essay on Derek Walcott. I had committed to writing a long piece on um, Christopher Logue, Michael Longley, and Alice Oswald's version of the Iliad. And of course, all the deadlines were due, and I'd spent time out in California, uh, taking care of my mother and making the arrangements and getting, getting the funeral home guy there. It's just, the guy showed up, he had a huge beard, <laughs> soup stains all over his jacket. <laughs> yeah. And I loved it. He looked horribly hung over. <laughs> He's like an immense guy. And he just said, Oh, I'm sorry for your loss. And I just thought, would you like an aspirin or an ad? <laughs> you look really hungover, pal. You know, <laughs> it was absolutely hysterical. And then, you know, I had the experience of helping him get her on the yeah. gurney and all of that. So long answer to your question is, I've had no time yeah. not to do work. Uh-huh. And the fact of the matter is, is when I'm writing, 
Everybody talks about discipline. I've never found it that way. It doesn't mean I write well, necessarily. Mm -mm. I write shit all the time. But I enjoy it. It's deeply pleasurable. Uh I I mean, early on when I was something like 22... I was working all kinds of stupid jobs, uh-huh. you know, like a janitor and mail clerk and swimming pool construction. And, you know, my favorite job was being a gardener. Uh, anyway, I was doing all kinds of stupid jobs. And the thing that I decided, I just asked myself, what is my energy the best? And I said, in the morning. Uh-huh. And so I said, all right, I'm going to build my life around that. Wow. So you just decided, I want to be a writer. When am I going to do that? In the morning? And that was the end of that, basically. That was kind of the end of it. I didn't ne- wow. I didn't ever really look back. I never had any idea that I would end up teaching. I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, the way I started writing was just, I was doing anthropology in southern Mexico. Yeah. I, doing anthropology is a little grand. <laughs> what it really was. It was really, I was working for a woman who was a spectacular Yeah photographer and her name was Gertrude Blom and she married Franz Blom who had quote unquote discovered is one of those loaded words Mm -hmm. which having studied anthropology you realize yeah yeah anyway but he had discovered Bonampak and Yachtjilan these two you know beautiful old Mayan complexes in Mm. the jungle and so Trudy had sort of taken on the Lacandones and I so I did a lot of work with work as I talked to mm. these guys, mm-hmm. and we became friends of a kind. And they had the language that was most like the ancient Maya. Wow. Yeah. And so there was a wonderful anthropologist whom I absolutely loved, again, a man named Robert Bruce, just mm. a huge bear of a man. And he brought back from the jungle this little monkey that had fallen into the fire. And one of its paws was severely burned. And you know, he told me to hold the monkey's like head like this so it couldn't bite you. And uh, we had this wonderful conversation about the Popol Vuh. About what? The Popol Vuh, which is a Mayan sacred book. Okay. <laughs> so we're like bandaging the monkey's paws, and he's talking about the Popol Vuh. And, you know, a guy named Kayum Mukmash was in the room. And so we were sitting there discussing the Popol Vuh, and Robert Bruce and Kayum were sitting there cracking jokes the entire time. That's amazing that, like, the sacred <laughs> is just such a normal part of, like, oh, let me bandage up this monkey's paw, and let's oh, also crack know, some jokes. And... It was really great. I mean, it was just hilarious. And I just thought, wow, this is, like, this is this is so much more interesting than kinship systems and Claude Levi Strauss. Right, and the gift economy and all that. Yeah, yeah. And all that horse shit that right. eventually got blown out of the water by Clifford Geertz yes. anyway. Yeah. But that's very interesting. I mean, I also wonder, like when you were talking about your random jobs that you were doing, you know, as a gardener mm-hmm. and as a construction yeah, did you, swimming yeah, pool. Swimming yeah. pool construction. And then this setup where you know you're doing quote-unquote anthropology as you yourself said i'm i'm wondering what is it in you that drives you to sort of go with the flow like that to not worry and just do things that are uh showing up let's say you know to you like what what do you think it is yeah young tom (laughs) what (laughs) what did he want what was he curious about and what was the role of risk in your life well risk was a big has been Mm. um 
I remember when I was 16 years old, I sort of had this unconscious little mantra in my head, which was, I'll try anything once. And I did. You know, I shot dope. I sold dope. Um, the kind of romance of that at the moment uh, very quickly gave way to the realities of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, drugs had a very different uh, valence at the time if you were a white surfer dude and right and this you know. was the 60s yeah, yeah yeah exactly and there was all kinds of you know kind of liberation talk and discovery mm. of psychic freedom and all that i never gave a damn about any of that i just wanted to get high yeah you know and so uh there's a poet i immensely admire it was a dear friend of mine, been dead a long time now, Tom Gunn. Mm -hmm. And Tom really crystallized it for me, you know. He has a beautiful poem about being in a bar with two men, and they want Tom to shoot up with them. Mm -hmm. And Tom says, are they just death's heads lighted glamorously? Or are they really, this is how you become more human, is by taking these risks. And for me, I've always had a romance with experience. And I would literally do anything once. Um, I was scared when I did it. Mm. So it wasn't like I was, you know, kind of this fearless macho. But for me, it was kind of ecstatic because of the nature of the people that I was doing it with because there was a sudden release from being 16-year-old Tommy with all his problems and, you know, and the difficulties of my home life, which I won't go into, really, because it was, you know, it, it's painful. But in any case, that sense of just being a kind of heightened consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, there's a wonderful definition of happiness by Bertrand Russell living as fully as possible in all your faculties. That is happiness. And I thought, wow, that's a beautiful definition of happiness. And that's certainly what I experienced uh, when I was writing. And it's certainly what I experienced when I was doing the anthropology. Yeah. And when I went and began to do the journalism uh, years later, there was a large hiatus in there because I you know, had a when I was 26, I got a life-threatening illness. And so, you know, before that, the attitude was, mm. I will go forward into life and explore and discover my life. And I will have this romance with experience. And then when I was 26, life grabbed me by the neck and shoved my head up against the glass and said, see? Yeah, like you're not as invincible as you That's think you are. That's what life is, pal. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> And everything changed, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. because, you know, I nearly died three times and I thought I would be dead by the time I was 36. Right. And the doctors told you, too, right, that yeah, you had about much. 10 years, that that was the average life expectancy for someone. Right. Yeah, that condition. really changed me. It yeah. really did. I lost any sense of a future when I was like 27. I, I just have, I plan for the future, right? but I have no... I don't really have, I don't really think about it, you know. 
I'm wondering if if that played any role at all when you decided to venture out into journalism and to go to all these war-torn regions or regions where the infrastructure is so bad that even if you had to, you could not get to a hospital in right. time to take care of your blood disease, right. you know? Like, right. was there a part of you that was just like, well, I'm going to die anyway, might as well do something cool while I'm still alive? Or? Well, you know what it was, was I, I clinically... I improved uh-huh, so uh-huh. that there was so that the you have to understand for years and years and years my life was lived in six-week cycles wow and it was all determined by the length of time that red blood cells take to you know you generate red blood cells and then they have a certain lifespan and then they break down and then they're replaced by other red blood cells But my red blood cells, because they were defective, they would suddenly break down in much greater numbers. And so for a good many years, I would have the surge of power Mm. because my blood count was higher. And then suddenly, you know, I would have a week, you know, every six or seven weeks in which I would begin to hemolyze lots of blood. And I would get, you know, depressed because you're just physically depressed because you're getting less oxygen and you would get weak and you would feel tired. And uh, all of the terror would come back that you were going to die. And that never goes away. And it never seems to lessen. It's like you're two people at once. You know, you're this person who is going to die and you're this person who's, you know, trying to pay their bills at the same time. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was teaching once at a particular university, I was having one of these sessions and I had to make it to the top floor, three stairs up and floor flat. And I nearly, you know, I collapsed yeah. trying to climb the stairs, but I didn't stop. Mm. So a lot of it was will. Yeah. And a lot of it was the desire, I'm not going to be defined by mm. my illness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things that happened when I clinically improved was that I knew that I could probably go overseas. And the mm-hmm. way it happened was so happenstance. I mean, I just got asked. And I'd actually, I'd always been fascinated with state violence. I'd always been interested in what it means for the stakes at war. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I read a lot of classical literature. And I re- remember reading, you know, Livy's the history of the war between Rome and Carthage. And I was fascinated just by the range of human experience that happened in war, that revolved around war, that kind of surpassed war that went beyond it. Right. And that awareness played into my um, total fascination with, well, you know, I'm a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I have this invitation from a Palestinian and from a Lebanese woman uh, to go overseas and meet lots of Palestinians. Right. Like like it was like a writing teaching workshop, right? It well, was not, no, not oh. really. What it was was a, a guy named Munir Akash, who actually is a translator uh-huh. of uh, Darwish. Oh, wow. And uh, his wife, Amir Al-Tsein, who's a scholar and a poet, Lebanese scholar and poet. And, mm. and they formed this mom and pop quote-unquote NGO, mm-hmm. and they took, you know, several Americans over, writers, and they just said, you know, what we want you to do is not do the usual news beat. 
what we want you to do is write something that will have maybe a more lasting value, but about, you know, kind of the situation of Palestinians after the 2006 war. Right. And I just had headline familiarity yeah. with the Middle East. Yeah. I was an utter ignoramus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm an outsider, you know. Yeah. I, I don't have any policy prescriptions. Everything for me is about, you know, small-scale texture of an experience, just the quirks and strangenesses of the individual people I meet, and trying to write as accurately as I can, and as close to my own observations as I can, regardless of my cultural limitations. That's for me what I'm interested in, because I like all those quirks. You know, when you write about Somali refugees during that famine that I wrote about, you see all these people coming in off the desert into the refugee camp, you know, many of them are not going to make it because they're just in terrible shape. And the thing that's tragic for me is the fact that all these quirks, all these strangenesses, human character, these people are going to die and it's all going to be lost. Yeah. And that's what I'm interested in preserving, you know. One of the pieces that you wrote that is my favorite, where you really get into that texture of Mm. the small scale is your story about this young Syrian man. His name is Maisara. I'm probably mispronouncing this. Yeah, no, no. Maisara, yeah. Maisara, yeah, who fled Syria uh, because Assad was cracking down on his own population and fled to Jordan. And he he started in a refugee camp, but he was bored out of his skull. And so he (laughs) left and got a job working at a sweet shop. And I'm just wondering, can you tell me about him? Well, first off, I was introduced to him through some folks in uh, UNHCR. Okay. A woman named Rania, who I immensely liked. And she said, well, sure, you want to meet some Syrian refugees? Well, go meet some Syrian refugees. No photographs, no names. Okay. Or no last names. And so we drove uh, and we met in this coffee shop. And I know what she thought I was going to do, which was ask the boilerplate questions. Like what? Well, you know, like, how did you come here? How are you living? Isn't it terrible? Isn't your existence miserable? Etc, etc. And when I met him, I could see that he was like, a little wary of me as well he should be. And then when I asked him about his daily life, I think he was really surprised that someone was taking such an interest in him, not as a kind of type. Mm-hmm. As a sufferer. Tragic type, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but as a guy. Right. And then when it turned out that he was in martial arts and that I did Tai Chi, I said, hey, let's go outside. You can show me some moves. And so we went out there and we, you know, I made a fool of myself spinning around and doing spin kicks and, you know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he worked at the sweet shop. He said, so why don't I come? And can I work with you? And I could tell he liked the idea. And he sort of smiled. He said, well, show up. Yeah, yeah. And so I did. And, you know, the whole thing kind of unfurled from there. But can you tell me about that? So you arrive at the sweet shop. And oh, then... no, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it was very simple. I mean, I just arrived there. I got there a little early. Mm-hmm. And then where they served the sweets was downstairs. And also, I had just been to a very famous place in Jordan called Habibi. Okay. Which has the best kanafa. Which is, in... what is oh, kanafa? the kanafa is this, like, sweet cheese on this dough and then there's rose water on it and cashews, and it is 
unbelievably delicious. So I thought, well, that might be really interesting and strange and fun. I could do this. And at the same time, I can ask him some questions that will be in a context which won't be, you poor refugee, how tragic your life is. Right. Because he was really good at his job, right? Incredibly good at his job. Right. Yeah. And actually, you know, when you do a lot of this work, you discover most people who are, quote unquote, refugees are very ambivalent about being called that. Huh. Um, You know, they understand entirely the legal significance of it. Mm. But at the same time, the human significance of it. One person said to me, when I hear someone call me a refugee, it makes me feel lesser than other people. Mm -hmm. And your status as a refugee, it sort of empties out all your experience. You know? Like who you were before is not relevant yeah, to me. Yeah, who you were before yeah. isn't relevant. And so you have to have this kind of mad optimism about being able to be something else. Yeah. But the, like the situation in Ukraine is so interesting to me at the moment because obviously, I mean, it's a tragic situation in every possible way. But the situations, and this is not to compare suffering. I've seen mm-hmm. people making these comparisons, and I think they're invidious, and they're kind of awful. And I, I keep thinking it's it's the kind of moral temptation, you know, of a certain kind of ideological stance to play one kind of suffering off another kind of suffering. You know, when you see Somali refugees, they have nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, we talk about Ukraine and we talk about the hospitals where people are holed up. There aren't any hospitals. It's just you, the desert, and this is 50, 60, 70 miles you got to cross in order to get to Dadaab. Yeah. And you're on your own, pal. Yeah. And you're subject to all kinds of, you're subject to bandits, you're subject to police you're subject to all kinds of things and and so the temptation of course is to establish this hierarchy of suffering Mm. and i i really am i i maybe it does exist but i can't possibly i don't want to live in my own heart making those distinctions i don't want to play off one kind of suffering against another i i I don't but i do have a question about that because you know a lot of people have commented, rightly so, I think, mm-hmm. that the way people have reported on the war in Ukraine yeah. is noticeably different from the way that people have reported on a war in, let's say, you know, Afghanistan or well, Iraq, or, is, you know, yeah. no, because those totally people right. aren't white. And, yeah. you know, and the way that people have reported on the war in Ukraine has been so tender and so humanizing. Yeah. Mainstream news outlets yeah. have picked up on details like this little six-year-old girl who's in the subway tunnel slash bomb shelter who sings little no, songs for her yeah, fellow, yeah, yeah, right? No, I heard that. Uh, yeah. Or this woman who, in her completely bombed-out apartment, all the windows are blasted away, there's dust everywhere, who plays her piano one last yep. time. Before, you know, people saving their pets, you know, traveling. Know. It's all very great... tender and very humanizing. Yeah. And it's great. I'm not saying, like, yeah. I know no, I that understand. I'm sound like I'm mocking it, but no, no, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, like, this doesn't happen for Somali refugees, Haitian no. refugees, Iraqi refugees. I mean, the fact is... You know, when I first started doing this, 
there wasn't any nobody no, was interested no. in it. No, but it's interesting to me because it is so rare, and because what people are criticizing mainstream journalists for doing is only humanizing Ukrainians and not humanizing people who are from places yeah. where people are, you know, brown yeah. or black or. No, I know. And I wonder, just like, if you think that your way of looking. Uh -huh. for these tiny details, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, my Sarah, the Syrian refugee right. who ends up in Jordan and works at a sweet shop. Yeah, he's also, after hours, he teaches taekwondo to kids, He teaches right? taekwondo. And, and then he, he does, like, these exercises these, for yeah. his brain, like these kind of exactly. brain riddles, whatever. <laughs> just the amazing detail that just yeah. takes you out of this whole, like, refuge. Because at the time, the way people talked about you know, Syrian refugees, no, the word right. refugee crisis was never right, far, right? right? right, right These right. were not individual people. These were masses, hordes right. that together, totally. you know, made up a problem, a crisis. Yeah. And so my question is, what do you think you have to do or you have to look for in order to find those details that will show that these people are people complex and you know yeah. idiosyncratic well i'm not a real journalist i'm an, i'm i'm an amateur i don't have to make a living at it i don't have a paper or an editor breathing down my neck mm -hmm. you know i write these things it, it can take time a lot of time sometimes several years and i can't really write about a place unless the texture of the place you know has imprinted on my nervous system i'll just give you an example the very first time I did any of this journalism was when I was, you know, back in 2007. Oh, yeah, seven, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the first thing I just said to myself is, well, you're utterly incapable of doing policy speak. Uh-huh. Because you don't know anything about it, even though you've read a ton. And it's not really a gift you have. So what do you have? And I said, well, as a poet, I know how to register texture. I know how to do that. And can you make that as concrete as you possibly can? Oh, sure. Yeah. What do you do? Well, I think the third night I was there, we were in Lebanon, we were at a hotel, and as soon as we arrived, a huge car bomb went off. And basically that started like the worst internal violence in Lebanon since the you know, 15 years of a war. But I was with my friend Chris Merrill for a few days, and I had the faintest idea what I was supposed to do. So, you know, I said to Chris, what do I do, Chris? And Chris said to me, all you're doing is you're taking very, very detailed notes of your physical impressions. Just enough notes to sketch out what, when you go back home, could be a scene. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you three examples of the kind of things that stick in my mind and for me are more kind of revelatory mm -hmm. than like this big picture. I will now tell you how to think about it. And the first one was I was sitting in my, you know, it was late at night and I was sitting in my hotel room and I was, you know, the TV set was on and suddenly a commercial comes on. Uh -huh. And there was a, a very nicely dressed guy with a leather jacket and there was a Mercedes kind of off about 30, 40 feet from him and, you know, one of these longer sh tracking shots. And he's walking up and he reaches into his nice leather jacket and he pulls out this little wand. And I think, oh, like some kind of thing for the car. And he 
presses it. And what it was, was it was a, a plastic explosive sensor. Okay. So that if somebody had put some plastic explosive under, <laughs> underneath your Mercedes, that you would know enough not to go next to it and, you know, and start it up. So it was a car bomb detector. Yes, exactly. And there was a commercial on the TV. Yes. Wow. Prosec for a world of security. I'll never forget it. And I said, I'll write that down. That's amazing. That's so banal almost. Like, Absolutely. I don't know what to say. Is it funny? Is it tragic? Is it, you know? Absolutely. And it was very conscious of, hmm, handsome guy in nice jacket. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> Carefully produced, you know? Yeah. I know. So there was one example. Another example would be, I got quite interested in blast waves. Because okay, what is those? What are those? Well, well, when a bomb goes off, it moves the air around. Yeah. And the air moves pretty much like a wave moves. So it kind of follows the path of least resistance. And a car bomb went off in this kind of fashionable shopping district called Ashrafi, if I recall correctly. And so I went down there to see it. And, it, and it's not here if a car bomb goes off, you know, they block it off for my, you know, it's like you couldn't get there. It was like caution tape, <laughs> you know, some street sweepers mm. and push brooms. Wow. And they're sweeping up the glass. Yeah. And the thing that was so amazing was the blast wave mm. traveled in such a way that it hit the show window of an Armani store. And because of the vacuum that it created, all of the clothes got sucked out into the street. And I'm standing like five feet away from a really nice Armani jacket. And I think, wow, I wonder, that might be a 44 long. I mean, I <laughs> 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 should I? It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, going, it's, it's the tragic and yeah. the ludicrous side by side. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things which seem to me to have the texture of daily life. And yeah. I remember when I was trying to go to the South. This is your third example? Yeah, this yeah. is the third example. Yeah. I was trying to go to the South and, you know, I had to get military clearance to go. And so I went to this uh, base in Tyre and I, I got, you know, I thought, oh, well, there'd be all this like official paperwork and whatnot. And, you know, it was hot. It was a Sunday and there was a yard, a compound of tanks. And I'm looking at the tanks and suddenly there are all these moving shadows I and mean, there's a lot of sunlight. And I think, what the hell is this? And it turns out that there probably were like 60, 70 feral cats. They were kind of lounging around on the tanks in the shade and lounging around. And I just thought, wow. That's so interesting. Why? Were they being feral fed there cats? or why? Yeah, I don't know. I, I went in and I got my permission and the, wow. you know, but even getting the permission was totally strange because there's a guy. Mm. First off, he's wearing a cowboy shirt with snaps. Yeah. He's obviously an intelligence and he's got blue <laughs> jeans mm -hmm. and he's got a comic book face down on his desk. And I'm trying to explain to him what I'm doing and I can just see that he thinks it's ridiculous. Yeah. Because I said, well, I want to write the story from the Lebanese point of view. And yeah. he just looks at me like, and what point of view would that be? Would it be from the Druze? Would it be from the Maronite Christians? Would it be from the Baha'is? Would it be... Because there are all these sects. Yeah. And he must have thought, this guy's an idiot. 
And he was right. Mm -hmm. I, I was. I didn't know that. But rather than hide that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you put it in the piece. Right. You don't try to, you know, the whole war is hell. I've looked death in the asshole kind of thing. <laughs> I, 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 that's just silly to me, you know? I was wondering if we can get to a poem where you do just that, where you foreground something that I think most journalists cut out uh, because it doesn't serve sort of the dramatic arc that they're oh. trying to build. So I was, I was wondering if you wanted to read the poem on page 29 titled A Dictator Walks Into a Bar. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so to set it up very briefly, I'll, I'll just do that. So this poem, the setting of it is the killing of Gaddafi. Right during the Arab Spring when, you know, the Libyans were uh, so sick of this guy who had been a dictator for over four decades that they found him. He was hiding in a sewage pipe, in if I'm culvert. not mistaken. Yeah, so they they dragged him out of there and, and basically beat him to death. Mm -hmm. So yeah, And this... then they shot him. Oh, I didn't, I missed that part. Well, they beat him to death and then they also, well, that's not in the poem, uh -huh. but there was a photograph, there was a later footage showed him with a, a hole mm. here. Uh, you know, you could see where the scorch mark and mm. yeah, the bullet. I just wanted yeah. to make extra sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything else that you want to say about the poem before you read it. Um, well, the only thing I'll say about it is that um, I was traveling with a militia when we say militia in this country, mm -hmm. uh, none of these people had experience with weapons. They weren't, you know, professional soldiers or anything like that. They really are the definition of a citizen army. And so they had to learn how to use weapons kind of on the fly. Mm -hmm. uh, Libya, in those days anyway, and I'm sure still was awash in weapons. Mm -hmm. You couldn't go anywhere without somebody shooting off a <laughs> i mean we were just a casual trip to the market there was a gun battle going on not 50 feet away from us and then it just moved on down the waterfront and everyone went about their business wow. so in any case the guy who was the head of the militia that i was traveling with was an electrical engineer um, and there's a very famous hotel in um tripoli which goes all the way back to the Romans. Wow. At least the um, columns do. A dictator walks into a bar. In the hotel lobby, leaning against the marble column from when the Romans ruled, I sip my vodka as gunfire night and day, ricochets in celebration, punctuating someone's wedding or a moment in someone's mood in which blowing off a clip into the air fights off boredom. In the cell phone video, that's more slashes of light jiggle and jag than a stable point of view. I watch them drag him from muck out of a culvert, his koofy knocked askew heavy body thrown across a Toyota battle wagon, where an electrical engineer turned militia man, who reminds me of my father, mild, unshowy, studiously polite, doesn't smile, frown, as he watches himself slapping and the footage that he's showing me, the brother leader, great Murshid the guide.
doesn't comment, doesn't shy away from my oh-so-fine-tuned sensitivities, quivering on the brink, maybe a little drunk, my cloak of objectivity already tattering into rags. His lumps, welts, not quite bleeding. Unable to look away, am I hoping to see blood? It isn't every day that a dictator rise under your heel. The one powerful enough to say, those who do not love me do not deserve to live. As if he himself were the soul in the body politic, and we were just an afterthought, accessory to his glory, the merest janitors to his trash. Or maybe just the trash itself, all of us human trash, waiting to be burned. But now it's our turn, and we've got him where we want him. His livid, puffy face, its blankness unto death like slopped over paint running down the can, his nose by now smashed in, so his mouth hangs open to the blawness of desert hardpan and cliff-shadowing tank tracks back into the Nafusa Mountains, where just an hour ago we were driving, and he was worrying about load-shedding and high-voltage grids, the tragedy of no infrastructure. While I was daydreaming of vodka and peeling happy hour shrimp, glinting like armor plate. Finally, I've seen enough. But as I turned to give him back his phone, he's moved down the bar and seems head bowed to be peering into his drink with that intimate anticipation that could signal a joke or a prayer speeding to its punchline. Only, it's the new kind of humor, the new kind of prayer, in which the jokes aren't funny and prayers don't deliver. And whether you're praying or laughing, it's all on you. Thank you. Yeah, what I love about this poem is that you're doing what you were describing earlier, kind of foregrounding your own, uh, I don't want to say incompetence because that sounds really uh, uncharitable, you know, but I mean... Incompetence will do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like a, a real quote-unquote journalist, they would probably have been kicking themselves that they were not on the scene when Gaddafi was being killed. And they would have probably solved that by then finding a few people who were and interviewing them and writing the story as if they were there. Right. Uh, but you didn't do that. You are at this hotel and this guy shows you the video of him being one of the people who kills Gaddafi on a cell phone. And I thought it was so funny because, you know, one of the reasons that one goes to a war zone or goes to a conflict, you know, the place where the conflict is, is so that you don't have to see it on a cell phone, right? Like the rest of us see it on YouTube or see it on right, whatever, right, CNN, exactly. right? And there you are supposedly in the midst of it all. And you're still kind of seeing it on this little screen. And 
the disappointment of that inevitably there must be some like ah oh, why wasn't i there you know yeah. i love that you just foreground that that you you put the guy and the cell phone in the frame you don't pretend as if that right, wasn't right. there yeah yeah can you tell me about that decision did you ever try to write this poem another way or like how did the kind of wrongness of the situation right you weren't actually where you were supposed to be or where a proper journalist you know was supposed to be how did that end up being in the forefront of the poem um you know in a very literal way i mean the the poem doesn't invent anything <laughs> no. uh i remember once i saw a um documentary about the Janjaweed in um, southern Sudan. Yeah. And the impression that they give is that they filmed it in okay. southern Sudan, but in fact they didn't. And the point I'm trying to make is that, I see, so you want to hype it up with this kind of phony drama that you were there because it's you who's so important to witnessing it. And, you know, I'm that whole kind of mentality, mm. you know, that one person can stand in front of history and tell us how to feel about it when everything in my experience tells me that, you know, there are so many cell phone videos out there and everybody has their own version of it. And so why pretend that you're the representative sufferer or everyone, you know, funnels, you know, their pain through you. It just seems ridiculous to me. And the reason why I wanted, you know, an incompetent guy who's like sitting there thinking about eating the happy hour shrimp and, you know, and in a country where it's very, very difficult to get alcohol, is thinking about alcohol. Although, you know, in part of these travels, you know, we went to an imam's house and one of the people I was traveling with, a Libyan doctor, had a, you know, a water bottle. And he said, would you like some water? And he handed it to me. It was full of vodka, of course. <laughs> you know? So I'm sitting there drinking vodka in the imam's house given to me by, wow. you know, by this Libyan Doctor, I think, well, yeah, that, this is... Another great detail. Yeah. yeah, and that's how it is. Even in the most restricted places and mentalities, these people always make room for their pleasures. And that was part of the idea that you're sitting here daydreaming about shrimp. I mean, that just seemed to me to be a much more interesting way to... F I never uh -huh. thought for a second that I shouldn't put that in. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I felt profoundly when I was watching this video mm. is, you know, Gaddafi was a bad guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no question about it. But I also didn't know how to feel about the fact that I was watching a fellow, you know, creature yeah. being beaten to death, no matter how terrible the things that he'd done were. And when I was writing the poem, I thought, you know, well, my political, you know, convictions say he needs to be removed, but my my political emotions are a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And it's the gap between those two things that seem to me to make truly interesting. That's the place I want to try to write from if I'm trying to write about these subjects. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I feel like you were going to a thing that I was wondering about as I was reading all your work, which is empathy and its limits. You yeah. Know? Um, and you wrote something a long time ago. This was before you even started doing journalism. You wrote the limit of what you can and can't know about other people becomes more and more a preoccupation as I get older. Right. How do you feel about that now? Does that still ring true to you? I think it's even more true. And and I, the, the person who gave me that insight was my friend Tom Gunn. Hmm. And Tom has a wonderful poem about empathy in which he said, save the word for your freshman essays. He thinks it's overweening. He thinks it's too much to claim. And he recommends sympathy as opposed to empathy. The fact that you can you can take your subjectivity, you can fuse it with somebody else, and Thomas saying, no, you can't. Your subjectivity has real limits. And the most honest thing you can do, and this would be Tom now, is to acknowledge what those limits are. And then rather than trying to hide that, is build that into the piece. Make that the limits of your own empathy or subjectivity or make that the focus of your persona as opposed to trying to expand it past, you know, uh, what its, you know, limits are. And I, I always loved that in Tom. Um, he wrote beautiful poems about what used to be called uh, homeless people. Mm -hmm. And... Now, you know, they're just folks who live on the street. But Tom has this beautiful moment in one of his poems, and it focuses on this one guy. And he says, and, you know, Tom's gay. Mm. And he said, lest I be guilty of giving to the good-looking only. <laughs> <laughs> and, and putting that into the poem and at the same time acknowledging what a kind of reprehensible right. viewpoint that is. And that at the same time, clearing all that space out and trying to see this person beyond just, you know, Tom's interest in them as a sexual object or this or that or the other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's like you coveting this Armani jacket that has been blown out of the window I by know, a bomb. I, right. And I'm not thinking like, God, did anybody die? But yeah. Oh God, I'm on Jack. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. It's, it's that there's just so many contradictory, weird th uh, thoughts that, mm -hmm. you know, it's the difference between what you think you ought to feel and what you really do feel. And the collision between those two things. You know. Can can I, and you don't have to answer this. You, oh, no, I'm just ahead. asking, and you, you choose whether you want to answer it or not, you know. But I'm interested in, in what you say about, you know, the gap between what we're supposed to feel and what we really feel. Have you noticed that gap in yourself when your mother decided to end her own life? Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Oh, I very much didn't want her to do that. You know, my mother uh, was... Um, she was a wonderful friend. Um, and it wasn't exactly that she had her version of mothering, let's say, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't everybody's version of mothering. 
in the sense that it wasn't so much your emotional life, or rather, I would say, it wasn't your well-being that she was so concerned about as, as, as it was your intellectual life. And I, I'd grown up in a house with books, but in a place in which books were not valued, mm. except with my mother. And, and, and that... And that made, you know, this kind of really deep, deep friendship possible. Because here this woman is who grew up dirt poor. And I say dirt poor. Her first home was a sod house. First person to go to college in her county. And then, you know, she became this kind of legendary teacher. I mean, I mean quite famous teacher. To the point where when, you know, she lived for so long, she was kind of run out of her money and it was a very dire, mm. you know, we needed to get money. And so a former student of hers launched a GoFundMe campaign. And I thought, well, great, I'll donate a thousand. He'll donate a thousand and I'll be that. Yeah. But our students from 40 years ago came out of the woodwork and began donating money. But her friend decided he was going to try to pitch this to the newspapers. And then what happened? I got a phone call and he said, they are going to run it on the front page of the San Diego Union Tribune on Christmas Day. My mom. Then the story got picked up and it ended up, I think, on the front page of the biggest daily in Hanoi. Oh! And then Kelly Clarkson, the talk show host, they contacted her and they wanted her to come on the show. And it was going to be, they had this whole show, it was going to be called Teacher Appreciation Day and on April 28th. And then I had to give a reading out in LA at USC. And so she called me and she said she'd had it. She was done. She wanted to end it. And so what happened is, you know, uh, she decided that she was going to do it. And these are the kinds of crazy conversations that we would have. And we'd have been having this conversation on and off for years. I mean, she called me when she was like, I don't know, 89 and said, Tom, I don't think I'm going to make it to my next birthday. And I said, really, Ma? You, you seem fine to me. Why, why aren't you going to make it? I said, well, I have to take a driving test. Mm. And I'm afraid if I can't drive. And I said, well... You know, Ma, you can't take a cab. <laughs> yeah, this is not a reason for you to yeah, die. So I, you know, yeah. it's sort of like you're going to kid yourself because you can't drive. Yeah. And that's kind of the way we. That was kind of our mo. It was. It wasn't like, you know, oh, this super is super serious. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my God, we're discussing death. And yeah, yeah. It wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. None of it was like that. And and she said, well, I want you to research it, how to, how to, how how I can off myself. And I said, okay, I can do that, not a problem. And I did, you know. And I figured it out, and I told her how to do it, and we had this whole plan. And if the law in California hadn't changed, I was totally ready to do that for her because my father um, went off dialysis, and I didn't do it. Yeah. And I deeply regretted that. I wish I had been able to find some kind of narcotic and just ended it for him because the suffering he went through was merciless and needless 
in any case, I was going out there to give this reading and she said, well, you know, I think I'm going to do it on, uh, you're going to be out here what day? I said, well, I'm flying out on Monday so I can see you. And she said, okay, well, I think I'll do it on Wednesday. And I said, well, Ma, you know, the reading's on Thursday. So do you think you could like hold off until Friday? <laughs> That's such a funny yeah, because, way of even like, well, let me grab my I, calendar, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I just said, um, you know, it, it's going to be kind of a downer for me, Ma, to try to give a reading if you just offed yourself on Wednesday and I got to get in front of her on Thursday. So maybe Friday. What do you think about Friday? And she laughed and she said, oh, well, you know, maybe maybe you're right. And then she said, well, I'm, I'm worried about the rent. And I said, well, why are you worried about the rent? The rent gets paid on the 15th. You know, don't you want to get your money's worth? It's like there's three, you got three weeks left before it's the 15th. And then you got the <laughs> Kelly Clarkson show on April 28th. Don't you want to be on Kelly Clarkson? And she laughed and said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. I get it. I get it. And so I went out there and I saw her and did the reading and I flew back because I, then I had to go out and give another reading in Texas. And then I got a phone call from her. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it uh, this week. And I said, you sure you don't want to do Kelly Clarkson? She said, no, I, I'm done. And so I said, okay, I'll fly from Texas and I'll get there on a Friday. And we'll do it on Monday. And so... You know, when she decided that she was going to do that, um, you know, I didn't, of course, I said, well, sure, yeah, I, I, I totally get it. But that's that's not what I experienced in my heart. Yeah. You know, I miss her. You know, I called her. I know. We always have these wonderful conversations, you know. You could you could roam anywhere. You could say pretty much anything. Um, yeah, she was a pistol. She was a real pistol. And it, and where she came from and where she got to. My God, you know, really something else. I remember on the very last day. You know, before you know, we did the deed in the morning. She wanted to have a last drive to go to this place called Dog Beach. Mm -hmm. And she really loved dogs. I think she loved dogs better than humans, <laughs> really. And, and so my mother had always lived with dogs. And a matter of fact, for years and years and years, she'd had a Samoyed. You know, those white, husky-like dogs, mm. pure white. She liked white dogs. And she had little ones uh, who were all ankle biters. And <laughs> I got so many fucking nips over the years from these little dogs. And she would brush them. And she had the comb and she would brush the dogs. And then rather than throwing the hair out, she put it into a bag. And then she had the bag, when it was full of hair, shipped off to a person who turned it into thread, wow. and then made a blanket out of it, a solid white dog fur blanket. And when she was talking about dying, she said, oh, God, you know, death is so cold. 
And she said, I want my blanket on me. I want to be cremated in that blanket. And so on this very last day, what she wanted to do is she wanted to go to Dog Beach, where she'd taken her dogs for years. And so we went to Dog Beach and we got right next to the curb so she could actually see the dogs. And, you know, lowered the window down a little bit. And she just looked out the window and then suddenly she just said to herself, this will be the last time that I ever see this. And it was that kind of sense that, you know, you're choosing this, but, you know, it, it, it had to take a certain amount of courage. And then the next moment was, you know, she said, I'm hungry. I said, well, what do you want to have to eat? She said, fish and chips. Because <laughs> she was a diabetic. She hadn't been able to eat fish and chips for like, you know, three years. And she was dying for some fish and fucking chips. And she said, air fried. I said, just, I said, okay, we can get you air fried fish and chips. And that was her last meal. And that's what it is. This will be the last time that I'll ever be seeing this. I want fish and chips. And she loved the fish and chips. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she was, um, I just love the, uh, you know. But really, I, I, the final moments were so strange. Um, my brother Jay's musician had played this old Peggy Lee song for her. Mm. Uh, the day before. I don't know if you know Peggy Lee, but there's there's a great song she does called Is That All There Is? And the, it goes, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends. Then let's keep dancing. Bring out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And her last words were to, you know, Dr. Bob, who we call them. She just said, is that all there is to it? And then about maybe 30 seconds later, her eyes shut and she did indeed start to snore. <laughs> and then maybe 15, 20 minutes went by and she was snoring like a chimney as she always did. And then suddenly her arms lifted and they went back down just like that very gently, and she'd had Parkinson's and bad palsy, and then when she took the medication, her hands stopped shaking. And so they went up like this, and they went down, and she was gone. Yeah.
Tom Slay is the author of 11 books of poetry, including Army Cats, winner of the John Updike Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Spacewalk, which won the Kingsley Tufts Award, Far Side of the Earth, which won an Academy Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and his latest collection, The King's Touch. He also published a collection of essays on refugees in the Middle East and Africa titled The Land Between Two Rivers, which was published simultaneously with a companion poetry collection titled House of Facts, House of Ruin. Before that, he published another essay collection, Interview with a Ghost, a translation of Euripides' Heracles and several plays. He's received the Shelley Prize from the Poetry Society of America, a fellowship from the American Academy in Berlin, a Guggenheim grant, and two National Endowment for the Arts grants, among many other honors. He teaches at Hunter College and lives in Brooklyn with the writer Sarah Harwell. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. And if you want to read that article about his mother, just Google San Diego Union Tribune and Rose Slay. That's S-L-E-I-G-H. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>